0: Good to see all of you guys. Uh, Let me let me do this. Um, I don't always do this, but today is uh, it's needed. I want to uh, before I even say anything else. um, I want to pray. Um, You know, I think sometimes um, it's easy to uh, make a really quick transition where you know we're talking and sharing with people or meeting somebody new. We sit down in a seat, just dropped off kids, and maybe some of them are crying, and you're making your way up there. It's a little chaotic. Um, and then all of a sudden you got to kind of get your mind attuned to be ready to receive God's word with your heart. Um, and sometimes that's not really realistic, um, nor is it human. Um, and that goes for me as well. Um, sometimes life is hard. Um, there's ups and downs and trials. And in the midst of that, still, um, you got to get up here and preach the word. In uh, good seasons and bad seasons, in season, out of season. And so uh, that's what I'm doing, always, by the way. Um, and so I need to pray, and, uh, and why don't you pray along with me? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you uh, for who you are. Thank you for your goodness. Uh, thank you for the truth of the gospel that you redeem and you restore everything. Holy Spirit, we ask right now that you would be with us today, that you would speak mightily through your word. Uh, Spirit of God, I ask that you would uh, remove me from this place and that only your word would be out in front of your people today. Uh, Help us to have hearts ready and prepared to receive uh, a unique topic today. Um, Be with us. We're here for you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are back in Esther this morning, and we are approaching the end. Um, Some of you are like, finally. Um, Others of you are like, no, I don't want it to end. Um, But we actually wrap up next week, believe it or not. Uh, But this morning, we're going to be in Esther chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 19. Um, We're not going to make it through the whole chapter today, just through verse 19, uh, but let me get us, get us up to speed uh, before we dive into our, our text for this morning. Um, Esther, as we've seen each and every week, is about the hidden hand of God working through a particular people you'd least expect in a time and a place that you'd least expect. The place was Susa. It's the capital city of ancient Near East uh, uh, Persia. And the time was around, around 500 B.C., a time when the Jews had been in exile uh, for around 100 years. And the two main people that we are familiarized with throughout the story are a man named Mordecai and a woman named Esther. And I think what we found, safe to say, they are very much like us. They are complex, they are multi-dimensional people that struggle uh, in terms of being assimilated into their culture's values. Uh, we know that they are somewhat compromised, they are flawed, and yet as the story of Esther has progressed, we've seen them increasingly walk in the ways of the Lord. And one of the things that I've tried to bring to our attention, week after week, is that though this is about a people A long, long time ago and quite far from here, this book, this story was written for us to give us help, to give us hope. And one of the reasons Esther is so relevant is because many of the questions, many of the doubts, a lot of the fears that they faced back then are the same ones that we face now today. Questions like, uh, will God be faithful? Uh, questions like, will he show up in my life, in this circumstance, even when I cannot see him? And along with that, is God at work even amidst my unfaithfulness or my failure? Well now, as we turn to chapter 9, we come to the climatic resolution of the book, God's people. Escape the genocidal plans of the Persian Empire. But the way they do it is surprising, perhaps initially even offensive, because what we're going to see today is that the Israelites fight. Um, And there is a lot of death and bloodshed um, on the hands of the Israelites. And in that I think this chapter raises all sorts of moral questions and even objections. The main one most of us have heard or even questioned this ourselves like how could God allow death? How could a good God allow killing specifically in the Old Testament? Like is he like some sort of moral monster? Or, or maybe you've heard this, it seems like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. And so, is that true? And the short answer is, Christianity does not glorify violence, nor does it condone it. In fact, it actually provides an answer to violence and ultimately promises to end all violence. That because of Christ, we actually, as followers of Jesus, are supposed to have a radically altered view of violence. That's what we're going to see today. Um, Again, this is going to be a really, a very unique message. Um, One that, honestly, I've never heard preached before, this topic. Because today, the central focus of the sermon is all about Old Testament holy war. We're talking about today. So I'm going to walk us through Esther chapter 9, I'm going to lay some groundwork that I think is essential in regards to holy war, and then we're going to bring it all together to see the incredible realities of the gospel. So hopefully you are turned to Esther 9 by now. Just before this, we know that Haman, the architect of the genocide of the Jews, has been Executed. Remember, he's been hanged on the gallows, put on public display for being a, a, a traitor, for committing treason. And while his edict was still in effect, the, the plan was there on a certain day, at a certain time, to kill all the Jews. We saw last week that a counter-edict was made. That Esther and Mordecai get permission from the king to write a new edict that would counter Haman's edict. And then that edict we saw was translated in every single language and sent throughout all 127 provinces in Persia. And then what happens is, eight months passes by. It's easy to miss that in the text because it's not written there specifically. That's the approximate gap we find between chapter 8 and chapter 9. And so chapter 9 opens... Eight months have gone by and we've now reached the day, the dreaded day of the genocide. This is what God's word says. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the Jews, sorry, the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So right away, the author takes away the suspense and tells us the bottom line of what happens. That on the day where fighting could take place, was allowed to take place because of the edict against the Jews, The same day that the Jews were given permission because of a new edict to defend themselves, there's a battle, there's a fight, and the Jewish people win. The tables were turned on that day. Uh, That those who wanted to destroy the Jewish people, the Israelites, were themselves destroyed. That's what we're told. That out of impossible odds, when we started this story, a, a hopeless situation there is a total and complete reversal of things. These people, this people group, who, who thought they were as good as dead, that, that God had given up on them, abandoned them, God shows up. The invisible hand of God comes through. Even though the Jewish people had turned their back On God, even though they were disobedient, even though they were in exile, removed from their city, God's place. For over a hundred years, God shows up as he always does, because he is faithful. We're told that right from the beginning. And then the rest of this chapter unpacks that. Um, unpacks this scene and, and, the, and the happenings that day. And so let's look at that. Verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And so one, one quick note here. Remember in chapter 8, uh, Mordecai's edict was all about self-defense. It's important to remember. It, it wasn't a license to initiate an uh, attack or a fight. There were parameters, there were boundaries, right? The Jewish people could only defend themselves against those who were seeking to harm them. And they can only fight for one day. So what happened? And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased. To those who hated them. So, this fear of the Jews, most commentators agree, was partially divinely inspired, but also due to this unexpected shift that had taken place. There's a massive transfer of power, right? And I want us to understand that the phrase, as well here, uh, did as they pleased. That sounds sort of iffy in English, right? But it does not mean that the Jews indulged themselves in violence. Like they threw off all restraint and they were just like, you know, swinging their sword aimlessly, like hacking people, you know, you know like, uh, like a war movie you've seen sometimes. Like, like the main character gets all ragey, and angry, he he's just like stabbing a person who's already passed away over and over and over again. That's not what this is saying. It simply means they were allowed to freely defend themselves without any interference or any restraint from the government. In other words, they were allowed to fight back, and so they did. And then it gets a little bit more specific. Verse 6, in Susa, the citadel itself, the capital city, so this is taking place throughout the whole empire, but now we get to Susa, the citadel, the capital. The Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men and also killed Par Shendatha and Dolphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Arisai and Aridai and Vizatha. <laughs> I read through that so many different times. With pronunciation, and I thought, as long as I wing it, they'll never know anyway. (laughs) Who are they? The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. Now, there's a lot going on here in those few verses, so let me highlight three very critical, important observations. First, we learn that in Susa, the capital, the Jews killed 500 men. And that's important. It's an important detail because remember in Mordecai's edict, back in chapter 8, verse 11, the edict gave the Jewish people permission to kill anyone, to attack anyone, including women, including children. That was written to match Haman's edict. But now we see here that the Jews don't use that right. They only attacked the men. When the day came, only the fighting men were killed, those who attacked them. And you'll see that come up again in verse 12 and verse 15 as well. Second, I want us to see that included among those killed were the ten sons of Haman, the ones with the impossible names. (laughs) Which means here, no one is left to carry Haman's legacy. No one's left to carry his namesake. And by the way, this was common to prevent any future rising up or any future revenge seeking. Haman tried to kill Esther tried to kill Mordecai, tried to destroy, annihilate all the Jews. Haman dies for that, and his sons die as well, in case they grow up and want to seek revenge for his death. But it's also interesting that their names are specifically stated. Why doesn't it just say, and his ten sons were killed as well? Well, there's two reasons for that. First of all, this reminds us that this is actual history. That this is not some uh, parable. It's not some fiction story. This is a real happening. It's a real event. But also, most commentators believe and agree that the names are here because each of these names refers specifically to a Persian pagan god. And so, this not only pointed to the death and defeat of Haman's family, but also the death and defeat of the Persian gods and of the demonic forces that were present in that empire as well. And then the third observation I'll make here is notice at the end of verse 10. This is um, one of those times where if you do like to underline, highlight, circle in your Bible, it might be worth it. It says there at the end of verse 10, they laid no hands on the plunder. This phrase is actually used three times in this chapter. And whenever an author, specifically a biblical author, but historically as well, especially in ancient Near East literature, whenever an author repeats something in the scriptures, because it is an oral culture, this was meant to be listened to, This would perk up your ears, grab your attention, and the author is trying to get your attention. That's the case here with that phrase. See, Mordecai's edict allowed for plundering, just like Haman's edict, which means, if you don't know what plundering is, some of you are nodding along, you're like, plundering? Yeah. If you don't know what plundering means, it means that after they defeated the enemy, they could take all of their riches, all their property, um, They could take their wives, their children, everything could be theirs. But they don't. They don't. And there is a very, very important reason for that, which we'll come back to in just a moment. Let's continue. Verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Esther, Queen Esther, and there's a level of excitement in this text, the way this is written, by the way. He's actually thrilled. He says, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? He's not like upset. He's like, can you imagine all of the death? Right. And then he says, now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further, Esther, my queen, is your request? Because it shall be fulfilled. So the the king rejoices alongside of Esther here. Because the Jewish people are victorious. And in effect, he says, Is there anything else I can do for you? To right the wrong that has happened to you, against you and your family, Anything at all, and Esther replies, why, yes, there is. Verse 13, and Esther said, if it please the king, you know, she used that phrase a lot, right? Not this is my request. If it pleases you, let the Jews who are, who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So Esther asks for two things here. First, she asks for the Jews in Susa, the capital, not the whole empire, just the capital city, to be allowed to defend themselves for one more day. And unfortunately, we're not told why. Maybe she has intel that the enemies of the Jews plan to keep on fighting. Like their backs are on the ropes and they're like, we're already defeated anyway and so we're going to fight because they can't fight us. But we can't be sure. But she does make that request. And then second, more important for our context today, we see she asks for the ten sons of Haman to be hanged on the gallows, to be impaled on that really high, tall stake that their father was impaled on eight months before. It's important to to recognize this, to realize this. Listen, these men are already dead. They've already died. But she's basically saying, don't bury them. Take their dead bodies and put them on display. Impale them. And like the Jewish people not taking any plunder, this is also extremely significant why she does this. And we'll come back to that as well. Let's first, though, finish this section of the text. Verse 14. So the king commanded this to be done. He allows it. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa. But look, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So there's a second mention of that. They didn't touch the plunder. Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives. Again, largely a defensive act per the edict. And they got relief from their enemies as well. And they killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. That's the third mention. And then this section ends. If you scroll down, we're not going to have it on the screen. But from 15 to 19, this section ends by telling us that throughout the empire, people rested and feasted on the 14th day. But the Jews who were in Susa rested and feasted on the 15th day because of the extra day of fighting. This resting, this celebration, this feasting, by the way, it's called the Feast of Purim. It's still celebrated to this day. And we're going to wrap up the book of Esther with that celebration, that feast next week. And so the the crisis is over. Uh, God's people are rescued from those who sought to wipe them out. Uh, Unexpectedly and undeserved, the danger is now past. It's over. And so what are we to take from all of this? What are we to do with this? Well, this chapter raises, in my estimation at least, again, moral questions in the minds of readers today. And it has, if you read commentators about this, um, agnostics, atheists against Christianity, they'll highlight texts like this. But the reason that this raises moral questions, even amongst followers of Jesus, is because we are unfamiliar with the biblical practice of holy war. And so we might wonder, why is there violence like this, found throughout the Old Testament, but not the New Testament? Did something change? Again, is is it the same God? Why is there so much violence and bloodshed in places like Esther 9, but Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, to pray for our enemies, to do good to our enemies? There seems to be a bit of a contradiction there, right? So let me explain. And then again, I'll bring this all together. Holy war in the Old Testament was a God-initiated war against pagan nations and enemies of his people as a form of judgment. Just judgment. Now at times, this was defensive. Just like here in Esther. Or like mainly during the times of Moses. But other times, holy wars were offensive. Especially under Joshua's leadership who led right after Moses. Where God would call for the complete destruction of armies and cities of pe- and people. Annihilate it all. But it's crucial for us to understand That holy wars were never meant, were not meant to be permanent or a permanent fixture of redemptive history. And that they had certain guidelines, certain boundaries, certain limitations put around them. So let me give you a few of those. First of all, we know that holy wars were always God initiated. If you're taking notes, that's the one. They were always God-initiated, meaning that kings and leaders and priests did not have the authority and were not authorized to call for a holy war. Only God himself or Israel's prophet through divine revelation could do so. And that means that as we read through the Old Testament, not all battles fought by God's people were condoned or approved by God. So we have to read through and discern that. Only holy wars were permissible by God. They were God approved. They had his stamp or his mark on them. Second, holy wars were limited to a certain window of time, to a specific place, and to a certain people. Certain window of time, certain place, certain people. Again, this was mostly under Moses and Joshua's leadership. So it was a unique season in the life of the nation of Israel as they were establishing themselves that was not to be repeated later. Which is why, for example, in the Gospels, when James and John, brothers, they asked Jesus at one point, I think it's Luke, Luke 9, somewhere around there, they asked Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village because they did not profess faith in Jesus. So they turn their backs on the gospel. They resist Jesus as king and Messiah. And so they go to Jesus, all right, I guess like, this is, we should just strike them all dead, right? Like, call down fire from heaven, right? And what does Jesus say? He rebukes them, it says, and he teaches them, and in effect, us. He says, this is not what followers of Jesus do. Never. It's not how we live. There's a different way we treat our enemies, which would have been confusing to them. But we'll keep going. Third, we know that holy wars were always, always a form of God's just judgment on sin. Not necessarily the people themselves, the ethnicity or the race themselves, but the sin. So holy war arose when the sin or the sins of a pagan nation reach a certain level, a certain threshold. And we actually read over and over again that God is patient. Don't attack now. Nope, don't go now. Don't attack. Let them be patient. Let them wait. Like, let them see who I am. And he would do signs and wonders and miracles waiting for them to turn. But when they didn't, judgment came upon them. So for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, God says that a major reason actually, a primary reason for giving Israel the promised land of Canaan was not because they were smart and powerful and righteous, superior, but because of the wickedness, the sin of the nations in that land. See, we have to understand, God is the author of life and death as the creator God. And he is the just judge. We, we looked at that you know, a week or so ago. And, and so these people who were steadfastly, time and time again, resistant to God, opposed to God, they were sadly destroyed. Not because that they were, not because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, like, "Oh, that 's my land. There just so happens to be a lot of good people living there who love God, but that 's our land, so kill them all." No, no, no. Not wrong place, wrong time. They died because of their sin. And in these cases, often after an enemy was defeated particularly in Holy War, we see this over and over again. The bodies of the leaders, the bodies of the king, of the pagan nation, was almost always hung on display for two reasons. As a sign, of, as a sign to everyone whose God ruled supreme. And number two, as a sign of these people being under God's just and holy judgment because of their sin, that we have to take God seriously, that he's a God to be feared. God initiated particular time, place, people. It's always about just judgment for sin. Fourth, we know holy war functioned to protect God's people, And to fulfill his purposes. See, here's what we know from the very beginning. God's goal was to bring salvation to the nations. It's been his plan since day one. And no one could get in the way of that. Which meant that his people who had that message, who had the saving message, needed to be protected at all costs so that they could move forward with the truth. And then fifth, a boundary of holy war, listen, a limitation on holy war was that no plunder could be taken. And by the way, this is how every single nation funded war. By plunder, including the Babylonians, including the Persians. Right? Remember even why King Ahasuerus is attracted to Haman's edict to destroy the Jews, because he says, you're going to get all this money. You're going to get all this plunder to fund our kingdom. Everyone functioned that way. You conquer an enemy, you take their stuff, but not Israel. Why? Because holy wars were not to be like other wars. They were never, ever, ever about personal profit and personal gain. They were always about God's redemptive saving plan of the nations. That stuff always went back to God, 100% of the time. And even Jewish people who disobeyed that, they too were struck dead. You can read about that in the, in the Old Testament. Okay? People stole at times, a plunder. And God's like, nope, that is going punished. Just judgment for sin. They were struck dead, just like the enemies. <laughs> now, the reason I'm, I'm walking us through all this, because it seems like there's a lot of information, a lot of details. It's like a history lesson in some ways. I realize that. Um, you'll see in a, in, a, in a brief moment, like in full, why I just said all that. But in part, I'm telling you this just simply to to highlight that these were not bloodthirsty, arbitrary, random, um, self-gaining, uh, barbaric attacks. Holy wars were limited; they had boundaries. They were God-initiated, and they, again, they took place during a specific period of time through a specific people, for God's specific purposes, which again was God's just judgment of sin, the defeat of false gods to show that God is supreme, the protection of God's people, and the saving work of God to the nations. That's what holy war is about. And so is God a moral monster? Absolutely not. He is good, He is just, and he is holy. He always does what is right. And so now, all that being said, let's go back to Esther. Because what I want you to see is that there is clear evidence, more than clues. This is absolute in in Esther. That what happened here in chapter 9 is actually holy war. Think about it. And I'll put three proof cases for you on the screen. Number one, first of all, there is an emphasis repeated again and again that the Jews laid no hands on the plunder. And again, that only happened in holy war. They intentionally don't take the stuff because they were sending a message. They had a certain intention here, a grander purpose we're about to see. Second, Esther desires that the leaders be hung, hung, all of them why because again in holy war the leaders had to be hung as a sign of whose god reigns supreme it's not the pagan gods it's not the persian gods it's the high king yahweh he reigns supreme but also as a sign that this nation is under god's curse his just judgment God reigns in rules, look. And then the third clue, evidence we see, is something actually we've already come across. And you've got to dig a little bit more in this, but it's so obvious once you hear it. And that is this, that Haman, we have to understand, who did he belong to? Remember, I told you to remember this during chapter 3, like two months ago. Did you remember? He belonged to the Agagites. We talked about this. And by the way, we are reminded of who Haman belonged to throughout the book. Again and again and again. In fact, just in case you missed it, it's mentioned twice again in chapter 8 from last week. And why is that important? stick with me here, stick with me right now, stick with me, or you're going to miss the great crescendo and how the Lord brings us all together. It's worth your time, I promise. This is important because we remember the Agagites were some of Israel's greatest enemies. And so from the very beginning when we met Haman, we're supposed to know conflict is coming. As soon as you heard his name, and that he was an Agagite, it's a sign to all the original readers, this means trouble. You see, when God's people first left Egypt, they are delivered, they are freed from bondage and slavery. They cross through the Red Sea. It happens a thousand years before this. This is how good and faithful God is. A thousand years before this, there was a man named King Agag. And he attacked, with his army, he attacked the Israelites He tried to destroy them. He failed, but what he did was absolutely horrific. He and his army, they attacked from the back, from the rear, which is sort of against moral code. And they do that, and as the Israelites are running for their lives, who's left behind? Of course, it was the elderly, the sick, women, children. And King Agag and his army slaughter them all. It was awful. And because of that, God goes to Moses, who's the leader at that time, Israel's leader, and he says that, Moses, there will be an everlasting conflict between Israelite and the people of Agag, the Agagites, the Amalekites, they're also known as, but that ultimately, I, not you, I will blot them out. I will rid you. Of your enemy. And so that's when the holy war between Israelites and the Agagites began. In that moment when God declares, I'm going to fight for you against this people. Holy war. Right after Israel left Egypt. By the way, it's the first holy war between Israel and another people after the Exodus. First one. Well, some time goes by, and the first king of Israel was appointed. His name was Saul. And after that, God sends, tells a message to Saul and the Israelites I want you to go out and destroy Agag and his people for what they have done. I'm ready. This is holy war. But what happens? Well, the battle is fought. Israelites win, but Saul fails to carry out the terms of holy war. You see, he spares King Agag's life. That is not allowed in holy war. And listen, he also takes the plunder. He takes all the sheep, all the oxen, all sorts of other valuables for himself and he makes excuses even though it was against God's will and the boundaries of holy war and he is removed for that by the way his disobedience and so now hundreds and hundreds of years goes by and the Agagites are still around they shouldn't be but they're still around and when Haman is introduced in Esther, it's been a while, but now they're introduced, and we are supposed to think about all of this history. The Agagites' war against the Jews, the horrific act that they did. We're supposed to remember Saul's failure. We're supposed to remember throughout Israel's history all of the torment that the Agagites Did against the Israelite people, God's people. And we're also supposed to remember the reality that they were still in the midst of a holy war with these people, that their conflict was unresolved. And so with all of that now, information and context, now you understand, I hope, why on the 12th month, on the 13th day? Why the Jews did not take any spoils, any plunder from their enemies? They took no plunder. And maybe now you understand why Esther strongly asks. Her king to hang the Agagite sons like Haman on display because Esther and the Jews were ending the holy war that God began a thousand years before. They were making all things right, they were reversing their people's mistakes. They were reversing Saul's mistake. Esther, as a better leader, says, I'm going to reverse the mistake of the first leader of Saul. And fulfilling God's promises here, this is what they're doing. It's so huge. They're actually fulfilling God's promise to Moses that he would erase the Agagite people. He would blot them out. That God would be faithful to his people. A holy war that began in the time of Moses, a thousand years before this story, ends here in Esther 9. And the fact that not only Haman is gone, but also his sons, represents the end of the Agagites. And what that means is that God's promise to his people, all the way back to Moses, is now fulfilled. God is faithful. He's faithful to his promise. It might take a thousand years, but he is faithful to his promise. He rescues his people, even though the Jewish people had made a mess of things. They had been so unfaithful. God did not abandon them. And by the way, it gets better. Not only did this holy war end, But chronologically in the Old Testament, listen to this, this is the last holy war in the Old Testament. So the question is, what's next? Well, let's remember, holy wars were not ultimately, or not merely about two nations in battle, fighting over some land and some territory. Ultimately, and we'll see this point, holy wars... They were about God's redemptive saving plan for the nations. That's the purpose of holy wars. It's about God warring against sin and evil on the earth. And now that the holy wars of the Old Testament are finished, that all of the holy wars of the Old Testament are now fulfilled, the book is closed, that opens the door for the Messiah to come into the scene. For the Savior to step on the platform. The the servant warrior king. The anointed one of God. Who would come to execute justice with clean hands and a pure heart. Why? To rescue God's people absolutely now from their enemies. And usher in a new era. Not of violence. But of grace and peace. And understanding this now gives us greater understanding and context as to why so many Jewish people miss Jesus. Now you'll read the New Testament and know because of this. Because they expected a king. They expected a savior to come and lead by the sword. At the, to the very end, Peter brings out a sword. He's ready to fight. This is the expectation to bring war. Jesus, you are our king, like Saul, like David, like Esther. Let's go to war. This is it. Rescue us. Defeat our enemies. Just as you've always been faithful to do. See, what what so many Jewish people didn't know is that Jesus came to defeat and rescue them. To rescue us, not from just any old enemy, not some nation, not some powerful country, but from our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And don't miss this. Jesus and the cross was the ultimate holy war. See, it was God the Father. Listen, this is so good. God the Father, it's him who initiated the cross. It was his plan, his will. It was limited to a specific place, to a hill outside of Jerusalem. Called Golgotha, the cross was limited to a specific time between the third hour and the ninth hour of the day. 9 and 3 p.m., 9 a.m., 3 p.m. It was limited to a very specific person, Jesus Christ. It was the ultimate holy war because it was a form of God's just judgment for sin, just like every holy war. Our sin got so great, it got so bad, it so separated us from God. We're so evil. That Jesus, in his grace, went to war, not against us, that we deserved, but went to war on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus was judged as the sinner, as his dead body hung exposed and humiliated on the tree, just like every defeated enemy in God's history. It was the ultimate holy war because its function was to save people from their own death and to fulfill God's ultimate purpose in holy war, which was to redeem, which was to bring salvation to the nations. And this was the ultimate holy war because three days after the cross, Jesus rose from the dead, demonstrating that the holy wars are now over. He is victorious and God's plan, his plan has now been fulfilled. Jesus Christ as the ultimate divine warrior king ended all holy wars on earth through his battle on the cross. And that's why there is no more holy war today. Because our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death have been defeated. It is finished. Which means now you and I, followers of Jesus, We live in this time that I'll call the in-between. We live in the in-between. We live between God's victory, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we live between that and the return of Jesus when he will finally take us home in fullness of glory. And until that time, while we live in the in-between, we should allow the holy war of the cross to reshape our lives and reshape how we relate to our enemies. This is why Jesus said to love our enemies and to pray for them. It's why he said, if you get hit, don't hit back, turn the other cheek. It's why Romans 12 tells us to let no one repay evil for evil. And... If it's up to you, live as peaceably as possible with every single person. See, understanding the holy war of the cross leads us, it leads us to not, to no longer fight our enemies with swords, but to fight with love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace, knowing that this is how our enemies, those who don't know Jesus, are transformed by the gospel. It means we go into our city. Maybe Seoul is your city. You go into this city not looking to conquer it, but to seek the good of our city and to do as much good as we can while God allows us to be here. It means we live our lives as servants. We fight for injustices. We plant churches that become pillars of light in the darkness. Again, understanding the holy war of The cross changes everything. It's why since the 4th century, Christians have created places where the sick are cared for, places that we now call hospitals. It's why Christians have historically led the way time and time again in terms of feeding the hungry. It's why so many followers of Christ are willing to move into communities and countries to fight poverty, to fight things like human trafficking, See, knowing that Jesus fought the greatest battle and defeated our greatest enemies gives us boldness and courage. But it also gives us a a mandate. It gives us marching orders, if you will, to spread the good news of the gospel and to live our lives doing as much good again as we can. Listen, as we read Esther's story, we see so clearly so much was at stake here, right? Right? The salvation of the Jewish people was at stake. But listen, don't miss this. There's so much at stake in our generation as well. Because Christ has come, and Christ has won. But that message, that gospel, still must go out for God's redemptive work, his plan, the salvation of all the nations to be complete. And so today, the question is this for each and every one of us: Has the holy War of the Cross? Has Jesus' work on the cross and His resurrection? has it reshaped your life? Has it changed the way you see your enemies? How you view opposing nations? how you view people with different political ideologies? Has it propelled you to to live your life on mission? To both speak the gospel always, but to also live out the gospel with my hands and with my feet? Jesus changed everything with his ultimate holy war on the cross. So church family, let's commit... Let's devote our lives to walking with Jesus and to fighting alongside of him with joy, with peace, and with love in our hearts. until so every tribe, every nation, and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me pray for you.